0: John 1, uh, beginning in verse 1, and we'll read some excerpts that go down through verse 14. It's a familiar text at this time of year. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning, and through him all things were made. Without him nothing was made that has been made. In him was life. And that life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, but the darkness has not understood it. But the true light that gives light to every man was coming into the world. He was in the world, and though the world was made through him, the world did not recognize him. He came to that which was his own, but his own did not receive him. And yet, to all who did receive him, to those who believed in his name, He gave the right to become the children of God. The word became flesh, made his dwelling among us. We have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only who came from the Father, full of grace and truth. These are the weeks of Advent, the weeks leading up to the feast of Christmas, a time when God's people reflect on our story We reflect during these times on the tremendous implications of our God coming for us. We remember during this time that the Creator of all, the Almighty God, the Maker of heaven and earth, has come and manifested Himself in human form that we may know Him. God, who existed in the beginning, God who created all that has been made, God who was light and who penetrated the darkness of space and time has now been manifested among humanity. God who showed light to people trapped in darkness at Advent time, we celebrate the reality that he came for us. But during Advent, we also look to the reality that it is a time to focus on the future when he who has come will come, is coming. We focus ourselves toward a future that culminates in eternity. We prepare our souls to receive him when he comes for us, either individually at our death when we breathe our last or we prepare ourselves to receive him collectively should time end in our lifetimes. This is what we emphasized last week. And today I want to emphasize a third dimension of Advent. Not only God who came and God who is coming, but God who is always coming to us at any moment when we open our hearts, always present, always leading us to a deeper dimension of himself. By the agency of his indwelling spirit, it is always a season of Advent available to us. God is present to us at this time of year. We prepare ourselves to receive God in that dimension as well, in his always presence among us. Centuries ago, our fathers and mothers in the faith institute a practice that we would use these weeks leading up to the feast of Christmas as a time to prepare our hearts to prepare ourselves to receive God unto us each year, opening ourselves to God to receive him anew. It became a time to reflect, perhaps to repent, a time to quiet ourselves and still ourselves in preparation for receiving the advent of our God. Now, one of the things that those who've gone before us encourage us to do during this season is to spend some time In self-examination, spend some time looking in to our fears, our motivations, seeing our shortcomings, examining our souls. This time of examination, but a time also of turning. A time where we take inventory of where we have been walking and we find ourselves where we ought not be and we turn. The biblical word for turning is Repentance. It's a time of examination, repentance, introspection, and turning. And this is the place where we would open ourselves to receive God to new dimensions within our hearts, in our introspection and our turning. And this is the task I want to encourage us to take up as a community this week. As you have quiet moments in this week, I'm going to encourage you this second week of Advent to spend some time examining your soul. To hold a posture of repentance before God. To examine your internal motivations and to invite the power of God to come to you in a new dimension. And I want to talk a little bit about how we can do that. Some of the practicalities of internal introspection, looking within our souls. What is this examination that the ancients have asked us to do? How do they talk about it and how would we do it? And here's a good starting place is to begin to think about the the core beliefs that we hold. Each one of us holds things very deeply within us. Ideas, things that we appeal to to get us through hard times. Deep convictions that are so much a part of us that we take them wherever we go. I'm going to ask you to begin to look at those core beliefs this week. Now. It's important to note that there's usually a gap between our stated beliefs and our core beliefs. Often that's true. Usually, in fact, it's true. What we hold in our mind and what we resonate with at our core is usually a gap. There's one example I've mentioned a lot of times. We say as people of God, we believe the words of Jesus. We say that when he says he will watch over the lilies of the field, he will watch over the birds of the air and how much more he will watch over us. We have a stated belief that we trust him and we rest in that. And yet. In the night hours, we worry about our finances. We worry about will there be enough. We worry about those kinds of things. So there's a gap between our stated belief, our mental belief, and our visceral core belief. The core beliefs come from the emotional part of us, not the cerebral part of our beings. They're more primal, these emotional beliefs. They're more instinctual than they are logical or related to cognition. They they show us how we think. Salvation will come to us down at the deepest parts of us. These core beliefs define what we think is good and how we find good things in our lives and how we avoid bad things in our lives. Some common examples. Here's a a core belief that oftentimes people would hold deep inside. For your dreams to come true, you must work very, very hard and you must plan very, very well. Or, a core belief might be, you know, when you're in a pinch, when you're in trouble, you can always count on family. There is nothing more important than family. Or, as long as you have your health, you're okay. As long as you are healthy, you're safe. Or, you must save, 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 because you never know what's going to happen tomorrow. That would be particularly what those of the older generation would say. For the same reasons, the younger generation might say, you must spin, 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 because you never know what's going to happen tomorrow. (laughs) Now, we may mentally hold one belief, but our actions tell us what we hold at our core. Watch what stresses you, and you begin to find out what you hold at a core belief. Watch what you focus on, watch what you spend your energies on, and you will begin to see what it is that you truly, truly believe. We typically see what we truly believe is a variation on one of a handful of themes because there are very many similarities between us as human beings. Typically, we will see it's a variation on the concept that money will save us or health will save us, or loved ones will save us, or work will save us. There is some variation of one of those common beliefs. And in this season of Advent, it's a good time to reflect on this. It's a good time to ask yourself, what do I really believe? Who or what am I really counting on to be my Savior? Now, we have some at our church who are still seekers, who have not yet committed their lives to Jesus. They're just finding out about this spiritual journey. But for the most part, many of us would state with certainty that when we think about our Savior, it is Jesus Christ. That's why we gather to worship God together. But if we look hard enough into our lives, we begin to see that there are other saviors who are in competition with Jesus. The internal core belief saviors, not the spoken Savior. But the internal core belief saviors, I may look to Jesus to save me, but I count on my family or my savings or my job to get me through. I may look to Jesus to be my savior, but I count on my friends or my work ethic or my health when I'm in a tight spot. And it's a worthwhile exercise to examine ourselves and present our findings to God and say, Lord, this is what I have seen about myself. This is what is at the core of what I believe. It behooves us to do this because over time, what we find is that false beliefs will inevitably become very harsh taskmasters. It will cost us to have a core belief in a savior other than our God. So how so? Well, a component of most people's true core beliefs is a formula. It is the if-then formula. If I can just catch up and get out of debt, if I can just save up some money, if I can just wipe out this financial problem, then I'll be saved from want. If-then. If I can just marry the right person, or if I had just married the right person, then I will, or I would have been, saved from sadness or from loneliness. If just then. If I get the significant people in my life to like me, if I meet their needs, if I make them happy, then they will be warm-hearted toward me then I will be appreciated and valued. Then I will taste the sweet of the land. If then, if I can just get my career sorted out, if I can get this better job, if I can get this promotion, if I can do this thing, then I'll be saved from my problems. If then, if I can beat this cancer, then I'll be free to live again. However, Savior's other than the divine one, have a built-in flaw. It's this if-then formula that doesn't allow us very much time for peace. When the if-then formula is at work, if I'm having a problem right now, then I'm having to wait for some future then for life to be good. I have to get this if licked first. Once I get this thing wiped out, then I can move on to the good life. Then I can move on to fulfillment. Then I can move on to purpose. Then I can move on to joy. Now, not so much. Now I'm getting ready for then. And so much of my life is spent in the getting ready state. I'm waiting for things to pick up. I'm waiting for things to get started. And we spend much of our life when we serve another savior in this if-then continuum waiting for the if to be licked so that the then can now be realized. And conversely, if I'm not having a particular problem at this time, the if-then formula puts me on very thin ice. Because I am just waiting for the time to come when the equilibrium is going to be upset and I'm going to be back into the role of having a problem. So I spend my life on a rat wheel keeping problems at bay because I don't want to get sucked back into the if before I can experience the then. So with other saviors than the divine, my life is either spent preparing to live, or on a rat wheel trying to keep danger at bay. And neither one of those give me the opportunity for a great deal of peace. And so what we find is that saviors, other than the divine one, become very harsh taskmasters. And they drive us, and they compel us, and they push us forward. And we find ourselves at the end of our days, having waited for life, and life passed us by. So my encouragement is to set aside time for reflection, because it's through reflection that we can present to our God those things that would serve as our taskmasters. I would encourage you to ask the Lord to reveal to you, Lord, what are my true core beliefs? What saviors do? I really count on? And what taskmasters am I serving unaware that I'm so doing? And so, a diagnostic tool that I can give you to help you in that process. It's a simple question, and I encourage you to ask yourself this question When will life get good for me? When will life get good for me? Now you may find when you answer that question that you will come up with a very concrete answer. Life will get good for me when I finish this project. Life will finish. Life will get good for me when I get this car that I need to get so I'll have some reliable transportation. Life will get good for me when I'll finally get a new dishwasher because I'm so sick and tired of this thing, leaving those speckles on the dish. Life will get good for me when my computer will quit giving me the grief. When I can finally get this problem solved, life will get good for me when I get into the house that I envision myself living in. Life will get good for me when I get the better job. Life will get good for me then. Or you might find that it's not that concrete an answer at all when you ask yourself that question. You might find that it's a very relational answer. Life will get good for me when I finally get married. Or life will get good for me when I finally get the marriage that I have straightened out. Or life will get good for me when I have kids. Or life will get good for me when the kids finally leave. Or life will get good for me when I finally get my boss off my back. Or I get my neighbor off my back. Or I get my friend off my back. Life will get good for me when, and it might be a relational thing, or it might just be a felt-need answer when you ask yourself that question. It might get good for me when I've got enough time for myself. Or it might be when I finally have enough people to fill my time. But what happens when I answer that question of when will life get good for me, I start to realize who I'm looking for as a Savior. I start to realize what my core beliefs are, I start to see when I ask this question, it is highlighted, what am I looking for to make life good, to finally get some peace, to finally have things be nice? Now, since we're in church, since here we tend to talk about God and Jesus and the Bible, (laughs) of course you would expect me to say the only effective Savior is Jesus. Of course, you would expect me to say that only God will give you true peace. And of course, you would expect me to say that the only core truth that is true is in God. The only hope of lasting fulfillment is in him. And that is very true. And that is right. And that is what I'm going to say. However, it's a little pat. And because the answer is a little pat, I don't find it all that helpful. At least I haven't in other times in my life. So to make it a little less, Pat, let's consider some part of the process of how God does that, some context around it. This season that we're in, this Christmas season, this Advent season, uh, highlights a very important understanding of the ways of God. Reveals a lot about the way that he does things reveals a lot about what's important to him. And one thing that you see when you look at the nature of God revealed through this process that we celebrate at Christmas is that with him, things tend to unfold over time, according to a process over time, according to a process. He states a promise to Abraham. And then he waits thousands of years for that promise to be fulfilled in Jesus. He comes to Isaiah and he says that there is going to be a child born to you upon whose shoulders the government will rest. And all that I divinely intend to govern will rest upon the shoulders of this one. And then he waits another 700 years before that is manifest in Jesus. He comes to a young maiden, Mary, and he promises her that she will be the tool that he will use to bring this to fruition. But then it's nine months before anything happens, and it's 30 more years after that before things get manifested. He gives the promise of his spirit to a handful of people in an upper room, stalwarts in an obscure province somewhere on the backside of the Roman Empire, and then he lets his kingdom begin to grow like a mustard seed incrementally bit by bit, over a long period of time, through a very carefully orchestrated process. And the process, carefully orchestrated as it is, doesn't look very tidy. It's filled with fits and starts as truth takes hold and as truth is abandoned. There's a time when an understanding of God ascends. There's time of plummeting doubts. There's times throughout history of the pure expression of God by his church where God's people look like an accurate reflection of the kingdom of God. And then there are times in the history of the church where the people of God live a life that is polluted and is a tainted expression of God. And God lets this go on over time, fits and starts process and time. God allows his processes to develop over time, usually over a long Period of time. He uses process to bring about the fulfillment of his divine purposes. He moves relentlessly. He is constantly and abidingly moving toward a future that he envisions a future of hope, a future of joy, a future of peace, a future of promise, a future that overshadows anything that can be wrought by false Saviors, anything that can be wrought by false beliefs. But he moves slowly. And he allows things to develop almost in an agricultural manner, more like a tree growing than a machine being fixed. If God uses time, uses process in this macro sense of overseeing the unfolding of the divine purpose in the cosmos, there's a pretty good chance that he will use process and he will use time to lead us from our false beliefs to our true beliefs, from our false saviors to our true saviors. And we would want to participate in that process with him. And we would want to give the time necessary to that process. It's about movement. It's about movement in belief. It's about going from what we did believe to what we do believe. It's about taking things from our minds and have them percolate to our hearts. And that's a tough process because Scripture teaches us that we're a deceived bunch. The heart, Jeremiah tells us, is above all things deceitful. Denial. Boy, that's a big part of the human experience. Misbelief. Ignorance. Avoidance, these things that we do are so integrated into the human experience. But God walks us through a way of life that moves us from a state of falsehood to a place where our core beliefs accurately reflect reality as it is. True is where he's taking us. True in the sense that his beliefs are rooted in him. When our core beliefs are rooted in ultimacy, in life outside the box, are rooted in the true, true and the real, real. Rooted in the realities of love and joy and peace and patience and kindness and goodness that God reveals are the very fruits of his nature, the very fruits of his kingdom. Life on this planet is an opportunity to move from falsehood to truth, from misbelief to belief. It's an opportunity to allow God to be our savior, not in the sense that we prayed the sinner's prayer, not in the sense that we are going to heaven, but in the sense that God is now saving us from where we were and taking us to where we are. Now, I have to say, from my experience with God, he's not very supportive of other saviors. The Old Testament uses the term, our God is a jealous God. Now, that's not a very helpful image for me because it evokes this image of a petty tyrant, kind of like Kim Jong-il, and I just can't imagine God up there kind of saying, well, you're just going to do what I want to do, and I will have no other God beside me. It's just, jealous God isn't a very helpful image for me because I don't think of God as being upset if I don't slavishly follow his every dictate. When I think about God not being supportive of other gods, it's more helpful for me to think about his firm commitment to truth. And because he's firmly committed to truth, the highest truth is love. And his understanding that truth and love and his commitment to those is so significant for me. God is truth. God created all that is. He knows what is good. He knows what is true and he knows how things are. We use the term in systematic theology that he is omniscient, all wise, fully and completely understanding the defining characteristics of reality. He understands truth. God knows better than the wisest human. He knows how things truly are, and because of that, he is love. For love is at the core of all that is. Love is ultimacy. Now, not some syrupy, sweet, romantic notion that we see in the movies and call love, but no, this tremendous, muscular, vibrant, powerful notion of selfless care for others, of selflessly working on the behalf and the good of another. God cares for us more deeply than we understand the concept of care. God is out for our best interests more deeply than we even understand the concept of best interests. So the confluence of these two things, of truth and of love, helps us understand the process by which God moves us from false beliefs to true beliefs. God loves us too much to allow us to continue walking in untruth. Now, it is true that the Lord will allow you to do whatever you want to do, and he will allow you to do it whenever you want to do it. That has been a privilege that is afforded to us as human beings, and we do well to afford that one to another because God gives it to us. God gives us that right, and he gives gives us that privilege. But if we want him... And if we want ultimacy in our lives and if we are in the pursuit of that which is divine in its nature and we want to connect to this universal truth, to this universal mind, he loves us too much to let us remain in lives that are reduced to the trivialities that we have found to be our saviors. A job status will not save us. Consequently, God will not allow us to remain serving a savior of job status. Having friends won't save us. Solving problems won't save us. The right zip code won't save us. A nicer husband won't save us. The right minivan won't save us. Problems being washed away won't save us. And because these things will not save us, because these things are not true, with a capital T, true, God, in his great love for us, will not allow us to remain in the place where these trivialities become our false saviors and consequently our taskmasters. The confluence of love and truth compels God to move us from a place that we're comfortable with, but is false, to a place that is unknown to us, but is true. Our trivial, diminished view of reality just won't do. And in his love for us, God will not allow us to remain in error. Truth and love demand that he lead our lives from a small, tiny little story of our own fabrication to a more dramatic story, a bigger story than we knew, a story that began before we began a story that will continue long after we're gone. The true core beliefs, the true, true, these things are not born of our own construction. True core beliefs are born of God. And true core beliefs trump all the lesser beliefs inside of us. And of those truths, the trumping trump one, Is this life does not begin with your hopes and your dreams? God defines what matters, we don't. God defines what is good, we don't. And the spiritual journey is the process of getting on board with His dreams, getting on board with His plans, getting on board with His hopes, and no longer trying to get Him to subsidize ours. So much of contemporary spirituality is the service of false saviors and then asking God to come and subsidize that service. God, I need this job. God, I need this minivan. God, I need this friendship. God, I need this thing. God, I need this. And if that's the sum total of our spirituality, we are asking God to serve a God other than himself. When we make that thing our savior, This is what will make me happy. This is what will fulfill me. This is what will take me where I need to go. And then we ask God to come and subsidize it. What's surprised that he often doesn't? Now, that is not to say that God doesn't bless us lavishly and abundantly and want to pour out blessings upon us. Yes, he does. He does that all the time. And it is right and it is good for us to ask these things. Jesus even told us to ask for our daily bread. But I'm talking about where is our master? Where is our Savior? What is our core truth? What is our core belief? And the spiritual journey is the process of moving from the place where we make lesser gods our saviors to the place where we serve him. And God does it over time. And he does it via process. It's an unfolding over time of ever greater truths. It's a process over time of yielding our wills to God, yielding our plans to God, laying down our dreams before God. A process of saying, yet once again, you are God, I am not. I yield to you, I yield to your plans, I yield to your ways. And God is looking for those who will use the fleeting days that we get to spend on this planet to contribute to living out his story as opposed to trying to get him to help us make ours have a happy ending. God is looking for those who will not spend their energies fabricating a lesser story of their own, not serving some lesser savior, not following some lesser dream, not living according to some lesser truth. And when, when we do these things, and we do, When we live according to a lesser savior, follow a lesser truth, we simply create chaos on the earth. We muck up the works of the real story that's going on around us. We trash the beauty and the light that is born of God's intent. Even well-meaning people do this. Even good Christian people do this. We can't help but do it when we're guided by lesser truths. We go out and we make a muck of the earth. We can't help but do that when we're looking to lesser saviors because we withhold the gift that we have to contribute to the planet, and what we do give to the planet is born of falsehood. We can't help but muck up the planet. When your life is over, when people are standing at your graveside, none of us want to hear them say, this person created chaos. This person fostered darkness. No, we want them to see that we live lives that were holy, Devoted to holy purposes. That our lives were filled with heroism and nobility. But this doesn't happen when we serve an untrue truth. This does not happen when we serve a lesser savior. We can't help but muck up the world and create chaos and darkness when we serve something that isn't true. We all want nobility but it requires of us going on this journey from falsehood to truth. For a few of us, the nobility that we yearn for can be granted in an instant. A husband and father puts his own life in peril and sacrifices his life to save a child that is from another family from a burning building. A young teenage girl is martyred in a high school shooting, unwilling to deny her God. In an instant, nobility is given to the martyr. But for most of us, nobility comes by a process over time. It's a lifelong journey. Most of the time, nobility is decided over a series of very small choices, very small decisions about what truth we will follow, very small decisions about what Savior we will look to for deliverance. A hundred Different small choices every day. What will I do with my money? And what do I do with my money? What does that say about what Savior I follow? How will I treat those in my office? And what does that say about what Savior I follow? What kind of time do I give give to my children? And what does that say about what Savior I follow? In the small decisions of my life, do I live sacrificially? on behalf of other people? Do I lay down my life on behalf of others? Or am I motivated by that characteristic of most false beliefs, all of which have at their core self-service? Am I motivated if I can get what I want in a timely manner? Then I will. If, then. The choices that we make according to the truths that guide us According to the Savior that we follow are so small, most of them seem not at all important. Now that's true when we're following a lesser savior, making choices about our money, about our time, about our friendships. But it's also true when we follow the true Savior. The choices are very, very small. The battle is won or lost over incremental little processes. But the series of small choices made on a consistent hundred times a day basis begin to form a process. And as we choose, we choose a direction. And that direction becomes a trajectory, a path that we follow. And that trajectory will breed either life or death, chaos brightness. We will work according to the kingdom of light or we will work according to the kingdom of darkness. And the only thing that determines which is which is the truth that guides us. When we pursue lesser truths, thinking that they will make us happy, when we follow a flawed if then construct to get what we think we want, we do so at the expense of a greater truth. We condemn ourselves to live in a lesser story. When we live selfishly at the expense of serving other people, when we pursue our own dreams at the expense of yielding to God's ways, we condemn ourselves with a thousand daily choices. Because inevitably, when we choose any other Savior than our God, darkness will seep into our souls one inch at a time. And eventually, We will have so much darkness in our lives and we will breed so much darkness in those that we love around us that we will miss the goodness of the story into which God invites us. A series of small choices eventuate darkness. We eventually find ourselves unable to do the good things that we yearn for, unable to strive for the nobility that we want on our deathbed, unable to strive for that higher life living after the Spirit. We find ourselves agents of darkness against our own wills. Generating chaos in our marriage, generating chaos with our friendships, generating chaos at the workplace, unaware, blind, oblivious to why it happens, but a series of small choices in the service of lesser gods has brought us to the place of darkness and we see the consequences around us. We find ourselves like Paul, the very things that I hate I end up doing and the things that I want to do. I cannot do it's a tough place to be but our Savior capital S our God our truth our love foreseeing this dilemma could not watch his beloved become lost in so deep a darkness of their own making so he entered that darkness And our text tells us he brought light into darkness, born of a young maiden, born under a star, born in a manger. He enters each one of us and he remains and he stays with us today via his spirit. This baby that was born lives in you this day and is there available to help you in the process of moving from darkness to light. To help you move, help you through the process of moving from serving lesser saviors to serving a true savior. To lesser core beliefs. To true core beliefs. The son who was with the father. The spirit who at creation made all that is now lives in you and is steadily at work, albeit slowly, albeit through process, steadily shoving aside darkness and steadily bringing in light. There is a source of light in your life and he is the light of the world and he brings redemption and hope to hearts that are darkened by false beliefs and false saviors. Our text says the light shines in the darkness and the darkness cannot overcome it. And so my encouragement to you this week is to partner with that process and simply take some time and sit quietly before God and ask this question, when will life get good for me? thereby highlighting any false saviors, highlighting any lesser core beliefs, and ask the Holy Spirit to open your eyes and use that diagnostic tool. When will I be happy? What am I looking for for my salvation? What false savior do I depend on to get me through? And when the Holy Spirit opens your eyes to some point of falseness within you, feel no condemnation. That's just the nature of being human. Simply commend that reality to God. Lord, here I am again this day. Lord, here I am, stuck in this point of falseness, and I give it to you, and I open myself to you. Do what you do, Lord. Free me. Do what you do, Lord. Deliver me. My encouragement is take the time this week. Spend some time in reflection. Let's pray. Lord, I ask that you would lead our congregation this week. Lead us to true truth. Lead us to moments where we see you as our authentic Savior. Lead us to find our capital T truth in you. But Lord, lead us through the process by which we get to see the lesser gods that we have served. The lesser saviors that we have counted on. The lesser beliefs that have determined our destinies. Reveal those to us, God, that we may commend them to you and consequently find our truth in you, our salvation in you, our deliverance in you. Establish that among us, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen.